0: Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. Alright, so we're in Mark 15, uh, Verse 42. Now an evening had come because it was the Preparation Day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the Kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead, and summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Then he uh, bought fine linen, took him down, and wrapped him in the linen. And, laid him, and he laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph observed where he was laid. Chapter 16. Now, when the Sabbath was past, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said amongst themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they had looked up, they saw that stone had already had been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples, and Peter, that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now when he arose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. After that he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country, and they they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they did not believe those those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe will will be condemned, and these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with the new tongues, they will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirmed the word confirming the word through the accompanying signs, amen. This is the
1: word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your presence here. Thank you for the reminder of this chapter. Um, The reminder that as we've learned about you, you are not just some Figure from history, but you right now are the reigning and ruling king of the world, of our own lives. You're seated at the right hand of the Father, and your presence is promised to us in this moment. As we gather in your name. The point of that is is we're here because of you, for you. God, because we all need you, you know what we need. We might not even be aware of it, but we're here tonight as a display of need to show our desperation for you. And so we're gathering for that purpose, and we thank you for the goodness of your heart towards us, towards your children. Father, we ask that you would just especially minister to us this morning as we've gathered around you. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be the one speaking and ministering to your church um, that ultimately you'd give us hearts available and ears that are open to what you want to do and what you want to say. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, as I mentioned just before Eddie's reading, which I have to say this, sorry about Eddie, he forgot to say it. Nobody can tell Eddie the score of the game. After the gathering, he's pre recording it and he's going to watch the whole thing later. So I got you, Eddie. But as I mentioned earlier, this is our final week in what has been about a 10 month series in the Gospel of Mark, where we have been exploring the way of Jesus. That's what the Gospel of Mark uniquely gives us. We're Jesus' people. And so we don't want to assume the way of Jesus. We don't want to like be like kind of about the way of Jesus. Like we have our own lives, but we've like added Jesus to our lives. We're like sold out into the whole Jesus thing, the Jesus person, the Jesus life. We're all about who he is and how he's called us to be as well. And so this series has been a, a display of our desire for, for knowing that in truth, knowing what his way really is and not settling for assumption. Um, and the Gospel of Mark has been a great place to explore that, looking at the life and the way of Jesus. We've actually looked at, I'm not sure if you, you're aware of this, but for the past 10 months, we've looked at over 30 different ways, 30 different ways that Jesus has lived his life. Um, here's a snapshot of those 30 different ways. Uh, it's, like, it's almost exactly 34. We did a couple part twos of the teachings, but we got a masterclass from John Mark, on the way of Jesus. We, we've learned everything from the way that Jesus began his ministry, to how he responded, to how he receives people. I mean, I'm just cu- kind of calling out random ones here. But this is like an overview of all the different aspects of the way of Jesus. And how many of us know this? We With this, we don't even begin to scratch the surface of all the ways of Jesus, which are, the Bible says, unsearchable. I mean, who could really get to the end of like, I finished the Gospel of Mark, I know all the ways of Jesus. It's like, no, you've, you've begun a journey, right? Now, that's what we've been doing here in this series, really wanting to get familiar with all the different ways that Jesus lives his life. Now, as Christians, we desperately need more than 15 chapters of Mark's gospel showing us the way Jesus did things. We need Mark chapter 16. For Christianity to actually mean anything, and for us as followers of Jesus to have some set of distinction, we need more than just some understanding of how our religious leader lived his life. I mean, that's essentially what unites most, if not all religions together. all religions are usually some attempt to preserve the teaching and the ways of some special figure. We've got to, we've got to enshrine the, the teachings and the ways of that, of that figure, and we've got to do our best together to live according to those ways. And I think there can be a danger, listen closely, there can be a danger even for people who believe in the resurrection as a theory there could be a danger for us as a community to reduce our faith to the same thing, where Christianity is just a matter of enshrining a set of teachings and practicing a certain way of life that a man named Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. I want you to notice the key thing that all of these teachings have, for the most part, had in common. As we've looked at every aspect of the way of Jesus, we've we're been look, we're looking at real history and they're all, notice this, past tense verbs, right? The way that Jesus received, disappeared, moved, enlightened. And that's true. But without Mark 16, all we would ever have is past tense Jesus theology. Are you with me? How Jesus lived. This is all important, by the way. I think most Christians need to go back to the past to really examine how they're living and their Christianity to how Jesus actually did it. But what Mark chapter 16 gives us so powerfully, so significantly, listen closely, is not just past tense how Jesus lived, but this fundamental fact of the Christian faith, the present tense reality, that Jesus lives. That Jesus who lived these ways Lives today. We've been looking at the way that Jesus lived, past tense, but we need Mark 16 to remind us that the Christian faith is not just the enshrinement of someone's teachings. It's ultimately the celebration of the fact that this same Jesus lives. He's alive. I mean, this changes everything. This is the hope of the Christian life. This is where we end the whole teaching series in Mark 16. This is where Mark ends it too. The fact that Jesus, this same Jesus, is alive and reigning. Um, In the gospel of, or sorry, in in the epistle of 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing to a church that has settled for past tense Jesus theology. Just kind of living Christianity, not in a personal relationship with the risen Jesus, but just based on the past teachings and life of Jesus. It was a community of people at Corinth, Um, this church there that had bought into this belief that there was no such thing as the resurrection of the dead. Like that was an impossibility that had seeped into the church. And you know, that presents a problem. Like if, if resurrection cannot ever happen, if that's your theological framework that like once dead, always dead, no matter who you are, like if that's your framework, it presents a problem as a Christian, your Messiah can't rise, right? So he's dead. So, so all you're left with, again, is just kind of his teachings and promises and ways of life. And this is really sad, but the, this church was somewhat comfortable with that. I, and by the way, there's Christians like this today. It's like, well, I don't really know what I believe about the resurrection. I don't really know if there's one way to God. I don't really know if salvation is true through Jesus, but I just really want to live the Jesus way. I, and it's like, here's what Paul says. Paul says, if that's how you live your Christian life, just based on some guy's past teachings and ways, Paul says, if in this life we only have hope in Christ in a past tense way, we are of all men the most pitiable. This is like scriptural language. Isn't that interesting? Paul's like, "It is. here's the most pitiful person. This is what he says. The most pitiful kind of person is the person that, lives according to Jesus' past teachings. It's, it's, it's been called moral therapeutic deism is kind of the function of that where you just kind of live according to morals in life, but there's no real experience with the living God. You, are you following me? There's no real connection to a real person. There's just a connection to past teaching. And Paul's like, if this is your Christian life, you are of all people the most pitiable. That, that's a sad way To live, to live as if Jesus only lived but doesn't presently live. See, Jesus lives, and Mark wants us to see that. Paul wants to communicate that, that the hinge of of hope, the the linchpin of your life and my life is not just the ways Jesus lived, but the fact that he lives today. That's the hope of your and my life. That is ultimately what should shape your Christianity, that Jesus is alive. Now in this text, you can write these four things down. This is maybe like a new practice I'm going to start doing more often, where I give you all four points on the front end, just in case we never know what happens. All right? And so here they are in the front end. In this passage, Mark wants us to, to really like settle our souls as followers of Jesus into the fact that Jesus lives victoriously over death, that Jesus lives historically as fact. This is, this, this is real fact in history that Jesus' tomb is empty and people saw him alive. That, that Jesus lives actively, presently now through his church. And that Jesus actually has an address. He lives locationally at the right hand of the Father. Let's, let's explore each of these in the text. Let's look at the first one. Jesus lives victoriously. Um, we saw it there in the passage. We saw this incredible account of this tomb... That Jesus was buried in. Last week, we looked at the death of Jesus. Um, this has kind of been an interesting season for us, right? In Mark, because it's Christmas. So it's like, last Sunday was Good Friday. This morning is Easter Sunday. Next week is Christmas, all right? It's only, guys, it's only at Solus that you can get Easter one week and Christmas the next, okay? Just kidding. That's weird to be like a church infomercial guy. Anyway, when evening had come, this is Friday evening. It was the preparation day for the Sabbath. The Jews had a day to prepare for their day for their day off of rest. That is the day before the Sabbath. Joseph of Arimathea, who was a prominent council member, a public figure, he was himself waiting for the kingdom of God. There's some idea here that he recognized Jesus as Messiah. He came and he had to, this required great courage for him as a council member to come do this, but he went into Pilate and while everyone was against Jesus, he was for Jesus and he came in and he asked for the body of Jesus. Jesus at this point has committed his spirit to the Father and it is finished. Pilate marveled that Jesus was already dead. Pilate was marveled that it happened so fast. And he summoned the centurion and asked if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. So this is an important thing. Um, Joseph of Mithaia goes to Pilate. He's like, hey, can I have Jesus' body to bury him? And he's like, he's already dead? And then he's like, let me check with the centurion. The Roman centurions were like the ultimate uh, validators of whether or not the crucifixion was successful. And let me say this. According to history, um, Roman crucifixion, was successful 10 times out of 10. If you were scheduled to be executed by the Roman government, eat your last meal and enjoy it, okay? Like, it's over. So, so this, is, this is historical fact. I have to say this because there's actually some theories that believe that Jesus never died, okay? Um, swoon theory, that he just, he was, even though they thrust a spear through him and they, they like, it, it, that's not just an insult to Jesus, it's an insult to the Roman government who were really good at killing people. That's a weird point, but it's true, okay? Now, Pilate can't believe it. He sends the Roman centurion to double-check this, and he comes back, and he confirms that, yes, Jesus is, in fact, dead. Lifeless, breathless, no signs of vital life. So they, he brought fine linen. This is Joseph of Arimathea. He took him down. They wrapped Jesus' – this is just hard to contemplate this. Jesus' body is wrapped in the linen, his – his corpse, and they laid him in a tomb which had been honed out of a rock, and they rolled a giant stone against the door of the tomb. No one's getting in nor out of this thing. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, observed where he was laid. Jesus is in this tomb. as, As Paul tells us, he died and he was buried. The burial of Jesus is a very significant part of the gospel story. This is called often Holy Saturday, that Saturday of silence, where Jesus' body lay lifeless in the tomb. If I had more time, we'd get into what was going on in the spiritual realm at that moment. We don't have the time for that. Um, Chapter 16 says this Now, when the Sabbath was passed, Sabbath is passed, Sabbath is Friday sundown up until Saturday sundown, Sabbath is passed. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices that they may come and anoint him. So there's both celebration of the life of Jesus, but great despair and sorrow over his death. Uh, in a nutshell, unless, except for those who maybe like, were in the bottom of their heart believing he was going to come back, for the most part, the display of the followers of Jesus after his death was essentially despair and loss and not hope. It was like Project Messiah has failed. Project Messiah Jesus has failed, and he's dead. Um, And so they're coming to honor Jesus. So very early in the morning they come, early on a Sunday morning, on the first day of the week. They came to the tomb. Don't you love the language here? When the sun had risen? Okay. Just me. All right. It's all right. That's fine. We're going to love the rest. It's okay. Verse 3. And they said among themselves... Who's going to roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? We want to anoint him, but there's a giant stone standing in our way. So let's just kind of, I love the faith, though. Let's still go and see what happens. It says, when they looked up, they saw the stone had been rolled away. It points out here that it was very large. And entering the tomb, notice, too, there's no soldiers there anymore. There's, there is somebody there, though. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe, sitting on the right side, and rightly so, they were alarmed. That's alarming. There's a young man in a long white robe. That's alarming. He's angelic looking as well. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. And here's the declaration. Here are, some would argue, these are the three most important words in the history of the world. What is it? he is risen he is risen there it is church people he is risen all right i know you believe it in your heart of hearts i know you believe it he is risen indeed he is not here he is risen see the place where his body once laid but is no longer there but go and tell his disciples. I love that Jesus greatly dignifies women in this moment who in that culture weren't even granted um, access to, to give testimony in a court of law. The, the, the testimony of a male slave was greater in that culture than, than a free woman. But Jesus goes, I know who my first evangelists are going to be, a couple women. And they're going to the be the first ones to go out and proclaim the resurrection. I love this, go tell his disciples, but I love this, Jesus goes, make sure you especially tell Peter, who's probably hanging his head right now, who's gone back to the fishing business, okay, (laughs) things are are rough for him, let Peter know who's especially sorrowful of heart, sometimes Jesus will give us kind of special attention when we need it, you know, and and he knows what we need, and so tell Peter that that Jesus is going before you in Galilee, just as he told the disciples. Remember he told the disciples this? After the Last Supper, he's like, guys, I'm going to die. But after I rise, rendezvous point, Galilee, meet me there. And the disciples are, are not there. They think he's, he's gone for good. But if you go to Galilee, you will see him as he said to you. So the women, I love this, they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed. The word amazed is literally ecstasy. They were ecstatic. They were flipping out that this just happened. And notice this. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, we know that the the text tells us that eventually they went on to declare the report. Uh, Mary's account is especially beautiful in John chapter 20. But this is one of those moments where, like, have you ever just been left speechless by the work of God, where you just don't have the language to articulate it? And someone's like, hey, what's God been doing in your life? And you're just like, words, right? Like... Sometimes there's things in life like that that go beyond our ability to to communicate it, that only really God understands what's going on. And so these women are at this point where they're just so ecstatic, they're so amazed. As they're leaving, they don't say a word to each other. They're just processing what God has done. They're just processing this fact that, hold on, Jesus' tomb is empty, and we just met with a couple angels who told us why the tomb is empty. Nobody stole the body. Jesus wasn't actually half dead and then came back, you know, like resuscitated. Or another one is, a, this is a great, hilarious um, theory, twin Messiah theory. Jesus actually had a twin Messiah who was alive the whole time, okay? Um, or wrong tomb. Like, no, this is the right tomb, and when we went there, his body wasn't there, and a, and a, a dude there in a long robe told us the reason why Jesus' body wasn't in the tomb. is because Jesus was alive. They're processing this incredible reality. And not only that, but they're sent out. Like, they're commissioned to take this message of victory to his disciples. They're commissioned to proclaim this reality. Uh, This is our message, isn't it? Our message is not just how Jesus lived. Can I say this? The Christian message is not just that Jesus died for people's sins. The Christian message is ultimately that Jesus is alive, that he's conquered the grave. The cross is where payment was given, but the resurrection is where payment is accepted. The resurrection is the receipt, you know what I'm saying, that says this counts for something. Jesus is alive, and the point we made here is that Jesus lives victoriously, victoriously over death. That's what these women encountered there at that tomb. Paul says this so beautifully in 1 Corinthians 15 um, when he says not only the fact that Jesus is alive and that he's victorious, but the fact that Jesus, as Christians, this is the reality of this, Jesus' victory becomes our victory. Process that. A lot of times we're working for victory in life, but, but the Christian life works from victory. We're more than conquerors through him who loved us. So it's kind of like, um, you know those bench players that win NBA championships? You know those guys? (laughs) And they're like, I got a ring. It's like you rode the bench the whole season. It just so happened that Steph Curry or LeBron or fill in the blank of whoever your favorite player was on the team. Um, But here's the good news. You're on the team. And if you're on the team, their victory is your victory. So here's the Christian faith. If you're on Team Jesus, his victory is your victory. He's victorious over the grave. His victory is your victory. You don't earn the victory, you receive the victory that's in Jesus. This is what Paul says so beautifully in 1 Corinthians 15. He talks about a time where ultimate victory is coming. Victory is broken in and victory will ultimately um, be fulfilled uh, over death once and for all. Paul says there's a time coming when this corruptible body will put on incorruption and this mortal body will put on immortality. Then will be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. This is what Christ has begun to accomplish through his resurrection the greatest enemy of mankind the wages of sin death is sw- well, come on that's some trash talk language right there is swallowed up in victory swallowed up it, not just like bitten off like a little bite but like that thing is fully consumed through the victory of the cross oh death paul says where is your sting your sting oh hades where is your victory The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. This is what we're stuck in and stuck under apart from Jesus. But thanks be to God. Can we just thank God together in our hearts? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this means everything. The fact that Jesus lives victoriously means you and I get to experience that same victory. Um, Can I give you some implications of this and why this is so wonderful and true? The fact that Jesus is alive declares three foundational things. There's many more to this. But let me first say, the fact that Jesus rose from the grave means this. Christianity is true. And it's really that black and white and that simple. Christianity is not just true, but Christianity is, as Jesus said, my word is truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. All of the truth claims of Christianity hinge on the fact of the resurrection. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, he was just another great teacher with a lot of great truish, truthy things to say, common grace truths. But Jesus made big and bold claims about himself, about humanity, about how forgiveness is found, about how reconciliation is found, about how eternal life is found, about himself, things like I'm God, and, the, and uh, the, the religious people at the time were like, "Okay, well, if you're God, give us a sign." Which they're basically saying, like, "Give us another one," because even though you've given a thousand, we need like one special one, okay? But Jesus goes, "Okay, here's the sign: As Jonah was in the belly of the earth for three belly of the whale for three days, so too the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth." And like Jonah, had a resurrection of sorts. That was a type of my life. That's to come. That's a type of my resurrection. Paul says in Romans 1 that Jesus Christ declared to be the Son of God through the resurrection. The resurrection means that not only is the Christian faith helpful and wise and good for society, the, the, the resurrection means Christianity is true. It's the truth that Jesus really is God, that salvation is, is true. Listen, that hope is alive, Hope is not just ethereal, but your hope as a Christian, listen, is as alive as Jesus. Your hope as a Christian is as alive as Jesus. How alive is Jesus? So how alive is your hope? Are you with me? Your hope is not dependent on how you feel and how you're doing. That's kind of hope downstairs life. And and we need hope in our hearts. We need to be confident and expect the things that God promises. But as a Christian, my hope doesn't hinge on me, my performance, my circumstances. My hope hinges on the resurrection. My hope hinges on the fact that Jesus is alive and everything he said is true. And So even though I'm not feeling it, I can trust him because he's alive. And all this is true. And the good day is just getting better. Hope is life. Eternal life is not just some ethereal promise. Jesus models it in the resurrection. He's like, you can have it too. And Paul says this kind of in a negative sense in 1 Corinthians. He's like, if Jesus isn't alive, right? He's like, we're all liars. And those who you love who have fallen asleep in Christ, they're nothing but memories. Memories are, are meaningful, The Christian faith offers more, to those of us that have lost loved ones in Christ, the Christian faith offers you more than a memory of their life. The Christian faith promises reunion. Reunion. Real bodily reunion with those loved ones. Hope is alive as alive as Jesus. Paul says we're going to be conformed to that same glorious body. Amen? Listen, Jesus is alive. He rose victoriously. This is good news. This means forgiveness is real. Aren't you glad? Any sinners in the house this morning? Sinners say, hey! Okay, don't do that. Um, sometimes I don't feel forgiven. Anybody else? Sometimes I'm... Mostly the thing that's in front of me is my performance. I hate to say it. It's more in front of me than the cross of Jesus. So I can be a lot more sin conscious than I am grace conscious and forgiveness conscious. And forgiveness can sort of just become like a thing that's over here that I have to come back to. This is why John says, confess your sins to Jesus. He's faithful, he's just, righteous, and true to forgive you of those sins. Bring your sins to him and watch him meet you with forgiveness. And you can bank on that forgiveness because Jesus is alive, he didn't just pay for your sin, like we said, he rose from the grave, proving proving that his payment for sin was valid. Like if I tried to die for your sins, you know what I'm saying? I could be like hey, I am going to die for your sins. It's like, well, two problems. Number 1, you're a sinner too. So what about your sins? It's like, I don't have an answer for that. And number 2, you're going to die. Jesus not only died as a sinless man, but he rose from the grave. Christianity is true. Hope is alive. Forgiveness is real. That's some good news this morning. Amen. Something to celebrate. Hey, Jesus not only lives victoriously. Write this down. Jesus lives historically. For the skeptic in the room who's like, wow, this is really great stuff that they believe this. You know? I would be that happy if I believed it too, you know? Like, I mean, if Jesus rose from the dead, like, I guess that is a really important thing. I guess it is kind of the hinge of hope for the Christian faith and for really humanity, for salvation, eternal life, all this stuff. But, you know, I'm not much of a believer, I'm more of a thinker, and um, I want to just clarify to you that the Christian faith, listen closely, regardless of how it's been pitched to you, the Christian faith is a thinking man's faith. Do you know that? It's a thinking man's faith. I, you know, I'm not just a follower of Jesus because I'm like, it just feels right. I'm going to feel it out. I felt it out. I'm going for it, okay? It feels right. Just feel it. Good good vibe. Good Jesus vibe. Okay, listen. The Christian faith is a thinking man's faith. Um, The Bible says that we're called to love love the Lord our God with all of our what? Our mind. We're not supposed to leave our mind behind and engage God with simply our hearts. We bring our thinking mind with us. We bring the wisdom of God into the equation. And so this this is a big part of the resurrection. Because Jesus is alive, but let me say this, the disciples aren't feeling it. They're not feeling like he's very alive. So what does Jesus do? He gives them evidence. Did you ever think that way? Like, God, I have questions about your existence. I have questions about your resurrection. And we come to God, we go, God, I, 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 my mind wants to, wants to think through this. I, I'm, I'm inclined to trust you. But I, I, I want to examine this. I want to test these things. Are you with me? Like, i got to explore this. And some of us, we think that if we do that, God's like, you don't trust me enough. You need to just believe. And, and, and there's times where we were called to walk by faith and not by sight. But when you see the account of the disciples after Jesus rises, he brings them first ear witness, you know, kind of testimony. He's like, I want you to hear about it. But then Jesus gives them substantial evidence. It says when he... Rose early on the first day of the week. This is a zoom in to what we just read. He appeared visibly to Mary Magdalene. It wasn't just the angel that said he rose. There's evidence. Look with your eyes. Examine this. Jesus is like, hey, I'm here. It shows up to Mary. She thinks he's the gardener. It's a great story. John 20, got to check it out. All right. Mary Magdalene, out of whom he cast seven demons. Then she went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. This is kind of more play by play of what we read about. When they heard that he was alive and he had been seen by her, they didn't believe her. We don't believe it. Maybe you're like, I've heard about the resurrection, and I just kind of struggle to believe it. Well, they did too. After that, so what does Jesus do? He appears. He gives evidence in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. The word to Emmaus. We read about that in the Gospel of Luke. And they went, and they told it to the rest, second time now, and they don't believe it either. Now, we have, we have two groups of people that have encountered and seen with their own eyes the risen Jesus, and they're not buying it. Later, he appears to the eleven. You know, twelve minus one, Judas, that's a sad story, right? The eleven, as they sat at the table, he appears, and let's look at this. He rebukes their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. Notice what Jesus does. He doesn't rebuke their unbelief for lack of evidence. He rebukes their unbelief because he's given the evidence and they still have rejected him. And this is, this is still the, mind, the, the heart of the secular mind in this culture today. That's why the Bible says the fool has said in his heart that there is no God. There's an unwillingness to recognize what the evidence points to. In the words of Lee Strobel, the evidence demands a verdict. This is some good evidence. you got two groups of people, two separate accounts. That's enough in a court of law back then to rely on, a, on an account and they're coming, and they're saying, Jesus is alive, and the issue at that point wasn't evidence, it was hardness of heart. It was unwillingness to believe. It's a lot we could talk about with that. I want to just remind you of this fact. Jesus lives historically, and that's not just something to believe emotionally. The resurrection of Jesus, for me, is what, it's the reason, historically, why I trust the reliability of the scriptures and the Christian faith. When I talk to... My non-Christian friends, and they're, they're trying to find out why I'm a Christian. And the, usually, they're like, you know, first thing they bring up is, like, how problematic Christians are. And I'm like, I could have beat you to that one, okay? All right. You struggle with Christians. Okay, welcome to the world, right? You're saying you struggle with people, by the way, okay? But I usually just get to, like, have you looked into the – have you – you heard someone say that to you? Have you looked into this lately? What the government's doing? Have you looked into it? All right. Have you looked into the resurrection? I mean, if it happened, if it didn't happen, there's a lot of people wasting their time on Sunday morning when they could be getting a nice brunch right now. They could be watching the World Cup right now. If it didn't happen, that's, you know. If it did happen, though, if it did happen, have you looked into it? It's worth your investigation. Now, um... From a regulative principle, Jesus likely will not show up in your bedroom tonight to prove that he's alive. Pray for it. Let me know how that goes. I, in fact, invite me over if it happens, okay? But there, listen, there's enough evidence to believe in the resurrection. Here's the two main things that, that Mark points to, the empty tomb and eyewitness testimony. This was my entire Easter message this year, by the way, so this is a uh, callback, okay? Mark's like, two things happen. First of all, Mark goes into great detail to describe the exact tomb that Jesus is buried in. This is a public tomb. Everybody knows. There's no wrong tomb. Everybody knows that Jesus' body is buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Everybody knows this. Even these women. Word is got around town. They know where Jesus' body is. It's a public tomb. It's a guarded tomb. Roman soldiers. I love the theory that the disciples showed up and like beat up the Roman guards and took the body. Like, first of all, have you read the Bible? Have you seen these guys? Like, Peter can't handle a sword for his own life. Like, he chops ears off on accident. On top of that, do you know where the disciples are right now when Jesus is? They're not going, we got to steal the body. They're going, we got to stay alive. They killed him. They're going to. They're marked. This is what actually proves the resurrection. They went from fear to courage overnight through one event. So, so. The tomb is public. Everybody knows where it is. The tomb is guarded by Roman soldiers to prevent that from happening. The the tomb is sealed. It's sealed with a big, heavy stone, with a rolling stone. All right? This thing is is closed from the outside, locked from the outside. And this is the thing that Mark points to. Now, in the first century, you know, uh, if. You were trying to discredit the Christian faith that continued to grow a month after, weeks to a month after Jesus' death. You'd be like, hey, hey, guys, you see that group of people? They're worshiping Jesus. They're like, he's alive. Like, come here, let's go. This is his tomb. Here's his body. You just produced the corpse, right? I mean, it's done. The problem with them is uh, Jesus' body is nowhere to be found. This is early testimony, This is, um, there's multiple attestation of this. Multiple people saw the tomb empty. And then one of the, the, the greatest tests of history, if you're trying to find out the validity of something, is you look at what's called enemy attestation. So if you want to know if something happened, you look at if people who didn't want it to happen recognize it happened. If people who didn't want it to happen, so the Jews, the Jewish leaders recognize his body's not in there. And so what they did was they they said, you got to spread a rumor that his disciples took it. That's what they did. So you have the empty tomb. Um, Jesus is not lying in a tomb anywhere today. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. The tomb is empty. Jesus' body doesn't need a tomb. Jesus is alive. The other thing you have is you have eyewitness testimony of his resurrection. You have people who not only saw that the tomb was empty, but they saw Jesus in bodily resurrected form on multiple occasions. And it tells us here of multiple accounts of people, these two on the road to Emmaus, these women over here. It's like, it's not like they're all together like, we should, you know what we should do? We should lie and tell people that we saw Jesus so we can prop ourselves up into special spiritual platforms and gain followers. That's not what happened. The people that claimed to see Jesus alive, you know what they did? They suffered because of it. They didn't gain from it on the earth. They suffered because of it. Paul gives the greatest description of this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Like, I love this. Paul's writing to the church at Corinth, and they're like, we don't believe in the resurrection. He's like, well, the resurrection is grounded in historical fact, that that he rose from the dead, and that he was seen by Cephas, that's Peter, and then by the Twelve, that he was seen by over five... Over 500 homies at once. It's a lot of eyewitnesses. This is before selfies and iPhones and like, and TikToks, you know? Like this is, what? This is before any sort of video evidence. I love this. Over 500 people saw him, of whom the greater part remained to the present. Isn't that such a cool thing? He's like, you don't believe in the resurrection? Do you know, you know Larry at the 9 a.m. service? You know Larry? The guy that's on the hospitality team, he was there. Ask him. He's like, some of them are still alive. You could ask these people about what they saw. This is one of, one of my favorites. And then he was seen by James. Does anybody know who this is? This is his brother. Like, what would it take for you to worship your sibling? Some say a miracle. A miracle, okay? What about the fact that they say that they're the Messiah? That, um, that their father is actually not, not your daddy, <laughs> but it's uh, the father in heaven. It's not Joseph, it's, it's God above. And that they're gonna be killed, but don't worry, because they're gonna come back in three days to prove their deity through a resurrection. And then they appear to you, and they're like, see? You, you would trust them, you would worship them. James goes on to write a whole epistle that's basically just an, um, an, an ode to his brother, Jesus, his half-brother. Jesus. Uh, so I want us to see this, that these two realities, the empty tomb and the eyewitness testimony of Jesus' resurrection, listen closely, these two realities are what led to the birth of the church. This happening as a fact is the only explanation for why the disciples go from cowering in fear to ending up in prison and giving their own. Peter dies of upside down on a cross after watching his own wife be crucified. For what, a lie? These events are what led to the birth of the Christian faith. Here's a a way that I want you to think about it. Christianity didn't start the belief in Jesus' resurrection. The belief in Jesus' resurrection started Christianity. This is a historical fact. This is where this all comes from. Look into it. Look into it. Hey, write this next one down. Jesus not only lives... Victoriously, Jesus not only lives historically, write this down, Jesus lives actively. Not passively, he's not just alive in some passive way. He's victorious over death. That's a historical, reliable um, claim. Case for the Resurrection by Lee Strobel, Case for Christ, great resource for that, kind of a starting resource. The Reason for God by Tim Keller, great resource for that. Anything by a guy named, he has a great name, Gary Habermas, that's his name. If you're just like, I want to look into this, read anything by Gary Habermas on the resurrection, The Case for Christ, Case for the Resurrection by Lee Strobel, a couple great resources for that. Um, This all leads to the fact that Jesus is not alive in some like ethereal, passive way, but he's alive actively. We see this displayed when he says to them, okay, now you, disciples, the Great Commission, you're going to go into all the world And you're going to preach this good news of my life, death, and resurrection to every living creature, to every human on earth. Bring this good news of the gospel. He who believes this good news and is baptized as a display of that faith in Jesus will be saved. He who does not not believe will be condemned. Um, Jesus will teach that he didn't come into the world to condemn the world. But he who does not believe is condemned already. That's the default condition of humanity apart from Jesus. Belief, you know, denying Jesus doesn't mean he goes, okay, well, I'm going to condemn you. No, no, no. The gospel is a rescue mission of condemned sinners. Condemned to a life apart from God, Jesus comes to save humanity. He who believes in the good news of the gospel is saved. He who does not believe is condemned. Remains in that condemned state. So Jesus, I want you to notice what he's emphasizing to his disciples. What did he rebuke them for? They had a lack of what? Belief, right? A lack of faith. So now notice how he's emphasizing the future of the Christian faith must be held up by robust belief. It's got to have faith at its very heart. You've got to believe the gospel. One of the hardest things for a Christian to do is believe the gospel as truth for their lives. Believe it. And then he says this. These. This is great. These signs will, not might, will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. We see Paul doing this in Acts 27. He's bitten by a serpent. The Bible says he shakes it off. Poisonous snake. And everyone's looking on like waiting for him to die. He's just like, all right, so anyway like a mosquito bite. It's amazing. And it will by no means hurt them. They will, those who believe, this is what's going to follow those who believe, they will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. Now, I want you to notice a couple things, a couple observations about what Jesus says. He commissions them to go, he calls them to faith, and then he promises certain evidences that are are, are going to accompany his disciples. Um, let me say this, a couple points about this. First thing I want to point out is that Jesus doesn't say those who believe should follow these signs. He doesn't say that. There's a, there's a big revival tent, and they're taking up snakes. we gotta go, we got to follow the sign. He, no, he says, this is in my own way, in my own sovereignty, in my own will, when I have a vessel of faith and belief, these, these are the things, supernatural things are going to follow people of faith. This is what he says. Like, whatever your theology is, this is, what, this is just what Jesus says. He's like, those who follow me and believe in me and trust me, supernatural things are going to follow them. It gets dangerous when we're trying to follow the supernatural things. Where's the sign? Where's the wonder? I need another one. I need another fix. I need another supernatural thing. No, no, no. Jesus doesn't say follow the signs. He says, follow me, and I'll perform these things. I I will do supernatural things. Sick people will be healed. This is amazing. The things that Jesus just promises to do. Now, what's amazing about this, too, is this is what happens. Jesus says this is going to happen. This is history. This is what happens. It says that, sorry, after Jesus spoke these things to them, he was received up into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of God. This is called the ascension. Jesus passes from, you know, it's like he came from heaven to earth. Okay. To show the way. That should have been our series song. Dang it. All right. From the grave, where does he go? That's not true. That's bad theology. Jesus doesn't go from the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky. Okay? He goes from the grave to appearing to his disciples for 40 days. That doesn't sound as good as a song. He went from the grave to 40 days appearing to his disciples. All right. Anyway. Eventually, after 40 days, Jesus passes through the heavens and ascends to the right hand of the Father. He tells his disciples, it's to your advantage that I'm going to go to the right hand of the Father because if I go, that means the Holy Spirit comes. Holy Spirit's is going to come upon you. We see this happen in Acts 1. And it says this, the disciples, they went out and they preached everywhere. The Lord working through them. This is it. Ready? The Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. And then Mark ends with amen. This is what happened. Jesus says, you're going to go into all the world. You're going to preach the gospel. As you walk by faith, watch me work through you. Now, what's amazing about this is if you see the things that Jesus is telling the disciples to be about, casting demons out of people, laying the hands on the sick, I mean, supernatural things. It's all rooted in proclaiming the kingdom of God and the gospel. This is literally what Jesus did when he was on earth. He's like, now you go be about the things that I was about. You go live available to me and watch me work through you, and this is literally what you have in the book of Acts. You have this event. You have Jesus alive and well working through his followers. Like, come on, this is our only hope. Not human efforts to start a church, grow a church, reach a community, reach our neighbors. Our only hope is this, Jesus, you're alive. Here we are. Would you work through us? Would you be active in us? Would you be active through us? Would you build your church? This is our hope. It's the hope for your life, not your efforts to serve him and do amazing things for him. And this is what you see in Acts. You you have this like trademark characteristic of the disciples. The people looked on and they're like, what is going on with these people? It's like Jesus is alive. I see it through them. What is so amazing about them? Were they like, were the disciples particularly capable or something? Like, it's like here's us and there's the disciples up in this capable category, and here's all of us were like trying to be capable and competent to be used by God. Most of the Bible exists to show us that they're men just like you and I. And so there's this really interesting acknowledgement in the book of Acts. It says that when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, untrained men. They weren't a part of the formal spiritual ranks. They marveled. Same word that's used of Mary when she goes to the temple, or goes to the, what is it called? Tomb. They marvel, and they realize that they had been with Jesus. They see Jesus in them. They see a relationship with the living Jesus. Can I tell you, that the problem in our lives today with God's work through us, with Jesus working in our community, working in our lives, workplaces, homes, neighborhoods, it's not a lack of capability. It's often a lack of availability. It's often an unwillingness or inability to present our lives to Jesus and just say, God, here we are. We know who we are apart from you, but we know, you, we know what you've promised. We know that you are active and at work in this world in the same way, actually in a greater way you promised, through us as we present our lives to you. What a, what a vision for our lives. It's, it's Isaiah hearing the Lord saying, who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I. here I am God. Here's my life. Whatever you find, just take it and use it for you. Be alive and active through me, through my business, through my parenting, through my neighboring, through my loving, through my serving. Use me, God. I can't do this on my own, but you're alive, and you want to work in and through me. I'll invite the band up here as we close with this last reality that will lead us to worship, and it's the fact that Jesus lives locationally. Jesus lives locationally. You know, if someone says that Elvis is alive, they've said that before. You'd say, okay, where is he? Right? Where's his location? Anybody been to Graceland? I've been to Graceland. It's a great place. Set off one of Elvis's car alarms as he, at a young age. This has nothing to do with the sermon. Let me finish. Um, Elvis isn't there, right? So we, we say Jesus is alive, and we ask, well, where is he? What's his location? And Mark tells us as we close out this series that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. This is where he is. It's a place. It's a posture. It's a position of authority where Jesus is ruling over the affairs of this world despite how broken they are. He's king. Um, Hebrews tells us that it's also a place. Listen to this. At the right hand of the Father, Jesus sits in a place of advocacy. Who's he advocating for? For you, for me. If anyone sins, aren't you glad that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous? When Satan brings his accusations, Jesus holds up the good news of the blood of the Lamb. We all have an accuser. The best news of all is we have an advocate. who Stands interceding at the right hand of the Father, praying for you and I. Um, this is what Hebrews says. We'll close with this verse as the band leads us. Hebrews says, there were many priests in time past, but they were prevented by death from continuing. You know, every pastor, every priest, they don't pastor or, or serve as priests forever because eventually they die and someone else has to take their, take their place. But Jesus, because he's not just limited to the gospel of Mark in history, but continues forever alive right now at the right hand of the Father, He has an unchangeable priesthood. Does anybody need that this morning? Like, man, how much changes in my life? How fickle am I? Thank you that, isn't it good news this morning, no matter what's gone in your life, nothing's changed about Jesus. Nothing's changed. He's still there. He's still available to you. He's still sovereign. He's still faithful. He has an unchanging priesthood. No matter how far you've gone, nothing's changed about him. And from that unchanging priesthood, I love this. He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Um, We give our lives to not just a man who lived. but to a man who is able to save you. He can save you right now because he lives. Jesus lives. So your sin addiction, your sin struggle, your anxiety, your depression, your pain doesn't define you because Jesus lives. And he's able, because he lives, to still save you. He saves you eternally, but he can save you right now. He can save you he can save you tomorrow. He can save you this week. He can save you, to, I love this, to the uttermost. Just when you thought you've experienced the salvation of Jesus, there's more to experience in him. And the good news of this is because he's alive and he's located at the right hand of the Father, and his goal in life is to intercede, to stand between, as a mediator, between God and man. And if you haven't yet trusted in Jesus, the Bible says that if you come to God through him, you will be saved. You believe the good news. And if you have trusted in Jesus, this morning, set your heart back on the fact that he's alive and available to you. Listen, he's accessible to you. You know where to find him at the right hand of the Father, waiting to be found by you. The scriptures say this, seeing then that we have a great high priest, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who has passed through the heavens, let us not hold back in our confession, but let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find the grace in our time of need. This is what the scripture calls us to, to access this risen Jesus.